Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. So Asian American was a term that was uh, established by activists in the 1960s as a very well-intentioned means to build social and political power. Of course, it's been criticized for really obscuring the incredible diversity among the people it claims to cover. When you think about it, Asian Americans comprise over 50 ethnic groups who speak over 100 languages. We're talking about Indian Americans. Chinese Americans, Taiwanese and Filipino Americans, Vietnamese and Korean Americans, Japanese, Pakistani, Cambodian Americans, Hmong, Thai, Laotian, Bangladeshi Americans, Burmese Americans, Nepalese Americans, Indonesian, Sri Lankan, Malaysian, Bhutanese Americans, and Mongolian Americans. That's just some of the diversity this umbrella term tries to cover. Now, in the 80s and the 90s with the census, they tried to broaden the classification a bit to the term Asian-American and Pacific Islander, which is the AAPI phrase we all know and use now. But that's proven quite contentious as well for many reasons. I am so thrilled to welcome our next guest. Maya Ives-Rubley is the director of the Disability Justice Initiative at the Center for American Progress, as well as a member of the President's Advisory Commission on Asian-Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders. Before joining CAP, she helped organize the original Women's March in D.C. in 2017. I was there. She founded the Women's March Disability Caucus. She's a longtime advocate and expert who worked on several Democratic campaigns in the 2020 cycle, including Liz Warren. She was named by Glamour Magazine as one of 2017's Women of the Year. It is a great pleasure to welcome Maya Ives-Rubley to the show. Hello. Hey, I'm so glad I'm here uh, with you today. Thank you. I'm I'm so glad to have you. And there's so much to unpack in, in celebrating this Awareness Month uh, for AAPI. You know, it, it really you, you can't have any conversation without talking about the inadequacy of the term Asian-American. Yeah, you know, I think that the term had had started out with, as you said earlier, its roots are are, are founded in power. In developing power and developing community power, we were seeing a lot of 
different Asian American communities that were being sort of pitted against each other through immigration um, quotas and and sort of work visas, et cetera. And so when the U.S. government got sick of one, you know, population, they brought in another population. They went on and on and on. And that, you know, organizers realized what was happening and realized how little power they were able to have being so many different communities. And so what they decided to do was um, particularly to, to develop worker power, they they decided to band together to create this Asian American title. And mm-hmm. that really helped in, in terms of fighting for some uh, a political voice. But what it also did was it helped sort of hide some of the various differences of the the different communities. And unfortunately, that has sort of spread uh, into to other areas of the way that we live in the U.S. today. I, I mean, I get that it's meant to be inclusive by going to AAPI, but I mean, this is all government agencies driving a lot of this. And I, I know that, you know, sweeping labels often have serious problems, and it really many feel it flattens and even erases entire cultures. So I, I guess the word that people need to learn is disaggregation, the movement to disaggregate, say, you know, Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders from Asian Americans, which the government did in their data back in 1997. But, you know, this umbrella category still remains. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I know disaggregation, that's a big word. And it's yeah. it's a very statistical uh, uh, terminology. Um, but I think that the reason why we talk about it so much is because there were different reasons why different communities came to the U.S. And due to those different issues, it means that we are economically at different places in our in our communities. And so some of the communities are much doing much better than than other communities due to the reasons of why they came to the U.S. So many of the eastern you know, communities, um, Korea, uh, Japan, China, um, those countries, because of some of the changes in immigration law, you know, many of the people who are coming into the U.S. are are well off and are people mm-hmm. with resources now, while other communities like the Hmong community um, came to the U.S. as refugees or as uh, as asylum seekers. And they are individuals that that didn't come from wealth and from power. And so we have this just giant disparity and what it means to be these different communities and to lump them all together means that we we aren't looking at those those very differences. And we know that in the Asian American community, it's got the biggest disparity in, in resources uh, within a racial category, even looking at Latinx communities and uh, black and African-American communities. We have the largest disparity um, in America today. Yeah. I mean, especially when you consider that Pacific Islanders had much higher rates of coronavirus cases and fatalities. So the grouping together just on so many levels um, can really cause a lot of cultures to be overlooked. It, It is amazing that this whole existence as this gigantic aggregate umbrella group it really is a political creation 
And it really only exists in the United States, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah, I would say, you know, particularly just because of the the wide diversity of communities in the United States, it is a very, you know, it's very oriented to the U.S. And so when we're talking about Asian American issues, of course, we're talking about Asian American issues. We're not talking about the dysphoria of communities across the world. Is is a potential solution just that I, I know some people are saying that, look, for government forms, all 50 plus communities should have their own checkbox. So I, 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 I there's two different arguments around that. One of the arguments is, is that when you start to disaggregate so small to such a small extent that it makes it hard to make a statistical significant analysis. And so when you're trying to utilize that small little data set and be able to sort of look at it at a broader scope and how it affects the totality of the community, a lot of scientists are very wary about that. Mm. But one of the things that the Asian American Pacific Islander and Native, uh, uh, Native Hawaiian communities are saying is, one of the reasons why you're getting such small statistical samples is because oftentimes they're not done in the languages that are native to right. the communities that they're going to. And so, of course, if you're only talking to communities in English, you're going to get smaller sample sizes and that's going to affect the way that you can use that data. So I think one of the things that we always pushed for is making sure that we're doing surveys and we're doing data analysis visa via you know culturally competent and language you know uh competent ways that 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 can actually get better data and better sample sizes you know you were you were talking about uh some of the disparate income issues uh, within the uh, AAPI community. Uh, it, it's true that many groups from East Asia and India are doing very well economically, but as you pointed out, I mean, Cambodians and, and Hmong are on some of the lowest rungs of the U.S. economic ladder. Cambodian folks have a, a 38% poverty rate. Uh, Hmong have a 29% poverty rate. And to me, this really speaks to this very curious stereotype that all AAPI people have to contend with which is the model minority, you know, this perception that, oh, all Asian Americans are totally successful. And I think uh, for a lot of folks who don't live in the AAPI community, they don't always see this as a racist trope that suggests everyone's well off and even pits groups against each other. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the model minority myth was created in order to attack other communities like like the Latinx community, like uh, the black community to say, hey, look, they did it. They're people of color. They're immigrants and they were able to make it. So why can't you? Right. That is the totality of that statement. And one of the things that I love to use as an example is myself. I am an Asian American who is disabled, who was on SSI. Right. It was on disability and and welfare. I am an individual that cannot fit within the model minority myth. And so I think it's 
really important to understand how that is so detrimental to our community, because it sounds like a good thing. Of course, it sounds like you're patting them on the back, but it's really a, a tool to utilize to not only ignore the poverty within our communities and the, the diversity of our communities and the diversity of experiences in our communities, but it's also used to uh, be detrimental and racist against other communities. Absolutely. There was a, a study in the Asian American Journal of Psychology I was reading about that showed that uh, 99.4% of Asian American high school students had experienced this stereotype at least once. And, you know, aside from the, the lunacy of trying to group people of Korean origin and people of Bangladeshi or, origin together, I, I mean, this model minority trope really does hide the struggles of many community members. Yeah. So, you know, the model minority myth is not only important to talk about in terms of the differences in ethnic groups, but also the diversity within specific ethnic groups. So we're looking at, for example, me, who identifies as a disabled woman who is also pan or bi. Um, I face different you know, sets of obstacles within life that will never fit within the model minority category you know, category. I'm an individual who was on, you know, social security, uh, welfare benefits as that type of individual saying that I fit within a model minority. It, it discounts my experiences. It discounts so many other people's experiences. And then it also creates a certain attitude and a certain um, stressor on the individuals that are titled the minority. We are seeing some of the highest rates of suicide and suicidal ideation in youth within the East Asian populations, right? And so all of this is very toxic towards our communities. And that's why I'm always an advocate to get rid of that stereotype and to to fight back and say that I am not going to be your model minority, right? I love that. I mean, it's it's so true. This this positive stereotype carries such a high cost for so many young people, the way it just inflates expectations, the way it's used to put down other minorities, and, and the way it ignores the struggle of so many people. It 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 really does I don't know, it does seem that this whole trope of the the model minority kind of absolves the white systems from taking real accountability for the inequality Most that definitely. this culture has created. Most definitely. 100%. And that is one of the reasons why it was created was to say, again, this community made it, whatever making it actually means in America. Right. And why, why can't you, why can't you make it? And it's just, I, and so many people ask me, you know, it's, it's a positive stereotype. Why are you why are you against this type of stereotype? And I'm like, because I don't fit it. It doesn't right. explain my experiences. It doesn't explain any of the people that I know and love and care about experiences. And it, it totally disqualifies the way that we live and the way that we experience the world. There's also such a universality of it in that the Asian groups that are 
doing more poorly are those that are living in areas with poorer quality schools. Regardless of what someone's ethnicity is, it seems to all be about access. Most definitely, yes. You know, a lot of these communities are built due to the fact that they're being, uh, you know, uh, discriminated against in order to be able to live in certain communities, right? So the, yeah. the redlining actually did affect uh, Asian American communities, Pacific Islander communities, Native Hawaiian communities who are still dealing with being sort of kicked off their own land. You know, right. it, it it really does sort of negate that that sort of structural issue that's going on by saying it, it's a personal problem. It's not an actual structural issue going on in America today. Exactly. I love this. This is why I was so excited to have you on. What also makes me crazy is that um, AAPI folks are also really the targets of uh, distinctly gendered racism. I guess that's the way to put it. There's a certain stereotype about Asian American men. And by God, there's a certain stereotype about Asian American women. And it seems like generation after generation, these stereotypes exist and they persist and they're not really called out that much by the culture at large. Yeah. What is wild is, is that the the stereotype is the exact opposites for each gender. Right. So the yeah. for Asian American women, they're seen as uh, individuals who won't fight back, but they're highly sexualized. Um, they're almost infantilized yeah. in, in a weird way. And I actually had a recent conversation because I'm a transracial adoptee who um, has two white parents. And I had this really interesting conversation with my mom. And because I grew up as an Asian American woman. And so I had the experience of particularly white men hypersexualizing me. And yeah. and and I grew up with this sort of sense of when I knew people were exoticizing who I was and my uh, my uh, sexualization. And so, you know, the, the objectification of 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 women. And I was having this conversation with my mom and she had no idea that Asian women were being hypersexualized. And really? this was just like a wild conversation with her talking about my experience growing up and the fact that I don't trust a lot of men because of my sincere fear. Like if I hear anything about them being interested in martial arts or interested in Asian food or that they spent time in Asia, I I get really worried and I get very protective of myself yeah. because of the experiences that I've had. Um, and the thing is, is that the experience for Asian American women, well, you know, it, it, it is very negative to have men desexualized, et cetera. For Asian American women, it's an actual threat to their yes. lives. Oh, yeah. Because women are killed and raped um, and, and abused and trafficked. Right. And so these are real fears that we have that we live every day thinking, you know, in the back of our head, we need to be careful. Um, so it, it was just an interesting experience to have that conversation with my mom um, about that experience. 
I, yeah, I think there was a certain point in my teenage years when I really realized how the word exotic is thrown around in some really awful ways and ways that are used to colonize the mind and make people view people as objects. Exactly. Right. Um, Most definitely. Asian American men, I I just want to touch on it because I heard about there was a study that was um, in a personality and social psychology bulletin. And it was fascinating to me because they, they, they ranked Asian men as significantly more hireable for a librarian job. Uh, which is seen as being traditionally feminine and seriously less hireable for a security job, security guard job, which is perceived culturally as being more masculine, way below African-American and Caucasian men. And Asian-American men just have to deal with this, this, this sort of weak or asexual stereotype. And as a comedian, I can tell you in the, in the comedy clubs, it's horrible. What the kind of stuff that they're still able to get away with. Most definitely. I think that, you know, it is a significant problem. And I think, you know, Hollywood is continuing to to deal with that stereotype. Um, uh, You know, I think that, you know, unfortunately, it is affecting a lot of Asian men's, um, you know, sense of self particularly in in America. But I think one of the, the worries that I always have, particularly as an Asian American woman, um, is how that can sometimes um, manifest in more toxic relationships and more toxicity and, and leaning into sort of masculinity. And we've seen you know, rates of of domestic violence and sexual violence against Asian women and a real like toxicity, particularly online of any Asian woman who decides to to date outside their race. Yeah. And so that that has been a real issue is is dealing with the understanding of what masculinity means within not only Asian American communities, but in the general Western society. And my thought has always been that we shouldn't have to ascribe to masculinity in the Western term that, yes, you know, we could think of a way to make masculinity more healthy in a way that doesn't demonize or harm uh, women, particularly Asian women. And, you know, half of the guys who push these stereotypes about Asian men had Bruce Lee on their dorm room walls and a poster. So it's like it's amazing how these stereotypes fly under the radar. I think about, you know, David Brooks talking about the Chinese attitude towards education. Or I think about um, uh, Amy Chua, who's known for the, the Tiger Mom movement, talking about, mm-hmm. you know, uh, how there is a superiority complex. Right. This 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 deep seated belief in Asian superiority. And it's like. Not only does the media not call these stereotypes out, but the stereotypes, as you mentioned earlier, just completely disregard the incredible diversity in this community. And and I, I look this up. Indian Americans have the highest median income of one hundred thousand dollars, but Burmese Americans have the lowest at thirty six thousand dollars. And twenty two percent of Nepalese Americans don't even have health insurance. Only six percent of Japanese Americans don't have health insurance. And this shows the diversity culturally and economically that this culture just 
doesn't recognize because it's a lot easier to group everybody into one box on a form. Most definitely. It's so much easier to do that. I think also the there's an intentionality in ignoring those groups because it fits within that model minority myth, right? Um, yeah. So if you have these outliers that don't fit within that that myth, how do you utilize it to to create these structural discrimination against black and brown folks? So I think it's this is an intentional ignoring of groups that are actually uh, uh, of darker skin, and it's a it's a version of colorism, and it yeah. it definitely is is something that our community is continuously trying to um look into and 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 do better on well i mean that makes me think of the stop asian hate hashtag because what we've seen between this racist president with his kung flu and china virus jokes and lies this surge in anti-asian racism the the mass shootings in atlanta um, that the shooting in Indianapolis that killed four Sikh Americans, this horrible shooting at a Taiwanese church just last week. It, it does seem that in some ways the culture is waking up to it, but it takes either horrific violence or overt racism from a clown president to make the culture at large pay attention. Yeah, I think one of the, the, the big experiences that I hear time and time again um, from others in, in Asian American and Pacific Islander communities is that so often we're sort of gaslighted about our experiences of, of racism um, because oftentimes it has been so covert. Um, and sort of institutionalized within Western sort of values. Um, you look at sort of the Red Scare, right? You look at, yeah. you know, all of these things that have been deemed sort of uh, politically okay to do. And it's been okay to uh, be against uh, or rail against China. It's been okay to rail against North Korea. It's been okay. Like there's these things that that have been deemed, you know, politically fine to do without understanding its implications towards yep. the, the, the people that actually live in the United States. And I think particularly of, you know, the internment of Japanese people oh, yes. and how we've hidden that, you know, I remember in, in high school, it was literally a sentence within my high school textbook um, and one picture. Yeah. The only reason I know about it is because I did Asian American studies in college to find out about the the just horrific circumstances that the Japanese internment camps were. Right. Um, but even there, so, even there, if, if I may, Mia, like we've been we've been socialized to call them Japanese internment camps. They were American internment camps, like even the way we've been raised to view these 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 injustices right. has warped the right. true cruelty of the experience. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. No, no, I totally 100 percent agree. And I think that, you know, it, it, we we've just been sort of um, told that it, it's OK uh, to to to, you know, delve into these and that it's not harmful because it's not harming anybody physically. 
Um, so I think, you know, we've been building up to this moment. Um, we see huge rises in anti-Asian sentiment. Anytime we get into a trade fight with China, we see, you know, or Jap- Japan or whatever. Um, so I think it's it's just um, unfortunately in, until we actually fully address these you know, very racist sentiments, we're going to continuously see this pop up throughout history. Well, then let me ask, um, in closing, I'm so honored to have you. I've been so looking forward to this. Uh, I, I've, I've, I've learned so much from you, and I, I would love to have you back to talk about disability rights anytime. I, I, I think your life's amazing. Um, what are you optimistic about? What is giving you hope now? You know, I think seeing the amount of community um, sort of mutual response to each other has been outstanding and something that has really given me a lot of hope. So seeing a lot of community members step up and, and speak out and, and build networks to support each other. I think the last you know, four years from the previous administration um, have really shown how communities can build bridges with each other that can build movements together to push back and start reanalyzing what we think is normal in Western society and and push back and say we we had the tools in order to make a more equitable and just community. And I think we saw some of that through the the voting that happened previously. We've seen, you know, mutual aid programs that have been developing around COVID. So all of these little sort of acts of kindness and acts of sort of coalition building have, have given me great hope. Maya Ives Rubley is director of Mia Ives Rubley, I'm sorry, is the director of the Disability Justice Initiative at Center for American Progress, as well as a member of the President's Advisory Commission on Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders. What is the best way for our listeners to follow you and keep up with your work? Oh, thank you for asking. Yeah, you can either follow me on uh, Twitter or Instagram at C Mia Roll. That's S E E. M-I-A-R-O-L-L, or you can check me out on the Center for American Progress's website. Um, we do we release a lot of different reports and we're hoping to have a report on Asian American uh, mental health out shortly. Your work is so inspiring on so many levels. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope we can have you back again. Thank you so much. And we'll be right back. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. 
So you were actually, George, you guys went back to L.A., and it was—it looked like it was heaven. I saw photos of the 10 the freeway Hills empty. Looked like it was three blocks away, and the sky was blue, crystal, pure, unblemished, flawless blue. And even the songbirds were happier. <laughs> Here, it was amazing because the streets were empty. I mean, anywhere you went, there was no one. It was so quiet. You could hear the birds. The I felt like air Will- was clean. Oh, so clean. Breathing was. But I did make a. Uh, my UCLA, um, I'm an um, um, uh, alumni, I did uh, a, a um, commencement speech mm-hmm. in my back patio <laughs> with six men dressed in black and masked. <laughs> I did a commencement speech in my back patio. <laughs> and it, I bet it felt like you were socializing. <laughs> oh, it was wonderful to have human beings as oh. masked as they were, looking ominous. <laughs> Here, I, I felt like Will Smith and his dog, uh, like just walking around an empty <laughs> Times Square. And then these Zoom comedy shows, let me tell you, it was like an AA meeting doing these things. I mean, trying to do stand-up. <laughs> you know, you look like a Beirut hostage video from the 80s. <laughs> I'm so glad that you're healthy. I'm so glad that you both are well. So far, Knock on wood. Was it? Were, did you feel very isolated? Was it just you and Brad and not seeing anybody? I wrote another book. It put the time to good use. There you and go. And Zoom. I mean, we became fluent in Zoom. Same. So Same. thank God for that. We kept connections going. Yeah, I'm so glad. You know, um, I guess this is the part in the interview where I should start the interview and do the do the the introduction. Is that okay? Right. okay? So we'll do the long obsequious introduction, and then we'll jump back into into I'm obsequious. S- I'm just oh, it has to. Be. I'm just so glad you're healthy. I'm just so glad you're well. You never got it, huh? Never got it. Oh, we, thank God. We've been healthy as uh, horses. We walked. 45 minutes in the morning in our neighborhood. Hancock nice. Park, very lush. Yes, I used Maybe. to. I lived in L.A. for years. I love walking around there. Yeah. yeah it's, it's a wonderful place to walk. A lot of bike riding here. Yeah. Bike riding, runners. Go, uh, so the humanity remained, but the automotive disappeared. Yes. I mean, I just went back to L.A. for the first time to take my kid to Disneyland before he turned 10. And Bravo. It's, bring them to California. Oh, well, yeah. Not I mean, Florida. We spend every Christmas in, in Disneyland. And I mean, I mean in L.A., we, every Christmas he, we take him there. And like just to not go for two years. I left stuff in the fridge, George. I left <laughs> stuff in the fridge. So, oh, so we cleared out our New York uh, uh, refrigerator. <laughs> Either way, uh, ate it or we brought it back. You were very Fresh wise. <laughs> so it must be wonderful to be back in your place here. It is wonderful to be back. And it is glorious to be able to go to the theater. <laughs> yes. Oh, I just saw my first Broadway show. And just What'd to be, you see? I went and saw David Burns, uh, American Utopia. Oh, I, I, we've got to see that. That's oh, one great. on our list as well. We saw uh, American Buffalo. Oh, and with we the, just the Fishburne version? Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and Sam Rockwell mm-hmm. got uh, a Best Actor nominee yes. nomination. So, uh, yeah, it's good to be back in New York. Well, he's been on this show, too. On this show? Oh, yeah. Oh, Oh, good. Oh, well, hey, hey, we don't don't book chimps on this one, let me tell you. Oh, I I am honored. It's so... We've just been elevated again. Well, it's (laughs) it's so great to have you back with us. So this is the part now where we've been talking for a few minutes. I should get around to the introduction. So uh, Saturday, May 14th, marks the inaugural Japan Parade in New York City to celebrate the friendship between New York City and Japan. I am bringing my kid. I'm so excited. And the first Grand Marshal is an actor, an activist, and an author. His recent graphic novel, They Called Us Enemy, chronicles his early life in the internment camps for Japanese Americans during World War II. 
we do not call them Japanese internment camps. They were American internment camps. Get that right. This gentleman is also, you might know, uh, known for the role of Hikaru Sulu on a little TV show called Star Trek and reprising the role in seven feature films. But his social media presence has made him a real-life hero to millions who weren't even alive yet when he first rose to fame. George Takei, welcome back. Good to be back in New York City and good to be able to go to the theater. Right? Oh, however, with my mask on. Yes. It's not mandatory anymore, so it's a different New York, isn't it? Uh, yeah, but I I still wear it. I, Me just too. Just as a courtesy to other people. Absolutely. I went to see uh, my first concert. I went and saw Bob Dylan in the mm. Beacon Theater. 2,000 people. Everyone with their shots. Everyone with a mask. It was the most pro-life crowd I had ever been a part of. But Born in the USA. <laughs> <laughs> How is it for you and Brad to be back in New York after being away for two long years? Well, we love the rhythm, the vitality of this city, and and the uh, <laughs> and we're theater people. Yeah, we love. Uh, going to the theater and it's coming back yeah. with wonderful first class uh, theater uh, the uh, revival of uh, company yes Patty Lapone. yeah the queen of Broadway music. my mom-in-law just saw it she's in New York and she just saw it last week yeah she's brilliant oh, and in this one the uh, genders are switched really? Bali is not uh, a man anymore Bobby <laughs> is a woman I love it and it takes on a whole different tenor. It's, I mean, it, Sondheim is fantastic. He's got so many layers in each one of his plays. And then when you change the gender, it's yeah. a whole different world altogether. Oh, yeah. The attitudes, the values. And I did uh, Sondheim's um, Pacific Overtures at the That's Classic right. Stage Company and at, at uh, our dress rehearsal. Sondheim himself sat right beside me in the theater during a break. Oh, I love being in New York. Yeah. You see and you have these opportunities to share a moment with the Giants. Yeah. And he's no longer is with us. I got to meet him only once. He, he came and saw a show we did in Chicago when he was living was out that? there. Uh, it was a, 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 a political comedy tour I do with Stephanie Miller. Mm -hmm. And uh, just to have a, a legend of his stature, and I was so sorry he didn't make it to see the West Side Story revival that Spielberg made for us. But, you know, you make me think about the last revival of Company, which was on Broadway. And in that one, the genders were original, but the yeah. actors were the musicians. Back, it was about 10 years oh, ago. Yes. And the actors played all the instruments that the orchestra Patty did. Patti LuPone. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, and I just think about how, uh, last time I saw Shakespeare in the Park, they switched the genders and it was an all-female Taming of the Shrew. Hmm. And it's like the theater is that place where you're always pushing the creative boundaries. There's going to be this whole production of 1776 with no white males. But it's about genders. Yes. How, how can you change genders on that? Because they're because that's the statement. I mean, if Hamilton can have a black man play George Washington, <laughs> they're having all like non-binary and women and LGBT folks playing the founders and it's like that's what theater does theater is way ahead of cinema exactly and for two years we haven't had it new york is venturesome it's experimental and it's brilliant i, I was bringing some of these uh, un 
thought of uh, combinations together. Shakespeare. Uh, uh, Shakespeare's on right now with uh, with uh, James Bond. Yeah, yeah. Daniel Craig. But who really steals the show for me is uh, Ruth, Ruth Nega. Nega. Oh, yeah. She is brilliant. Well, do you see, did you see Passing? I mean, she's great in that. Oh, yeah, of yeah. course, the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, she, she's a wonderful actress. She knows how to use her body, her arms, becomes almost choreographed extension of her body. Uh, the uh, washing of the hands. Uh, With the scene. blood, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's the whole arm that comes into play. She is magnificent. I mean, I haven't seen it yet. It's uh, I, I love the, the, the Joel Cohen uh, Macbeth that was just mm-hmm. in theaters, but Daniel Craig got COVID. And Ruth Nega That's didn't. Right. It's so random that he got it, but she didn't. Well, it happens. I mean, some of our friends that we've been near, you know, got it. And uh, so far, Brad and I have ma- managed to stay healthy and hale. I'm so glad about that. And I'm, I'm so glad that you're here for this parade. I'm glad it's outdoors because I don't need you getting COVID. You know, I, I was so inspired to hear about this parade because, as you well know, Last February marks 80 years since Franklin Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066, which, of course, ordered all Japanese Americans on the West Coast and and Western Arizona to be rounded up and sent to concentration camps. I know we call them internment camps, but they were concentrations of people. They were concentration camps. And I can't think of a better commemoration of that dark anniversary than a joyful celebration of how far we've come. Exactly. And also... I mean, yes, we were put into American concentration camps simply because of the way we look. Yeah. We looked exactly like the people at Bomb Pearl Harbor. Yeah. That horrible war is 80 years behind us now. Back then, the United States and Japan were mortal enemies. And today, our strongest ally in Asia is Japan. Mm-hmm. Amazing. In fact, you know, we were invited, Brad and I were invited to uh, a state dinner uh, during the Obama administration. The president was, uh, had invited and was welcoming the prime minister of Japan, Shinzo Abe, uh, to uh, the United States. And the state dinner was uh, in uh, in honor of uh, the prime minister being here. And that night was to me the most surreal, thrillingly surreal evening. I looked at the, 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 the East Room was filled with digni- dignities from all over, from the world of politics, uh, uh, academia, uh, from celebrities. And uh, here was this raised dais and the president of uh, the United States, the first African-American president of the United States, was welcoming Shinzo Abe, the prime minister of Japan, only 80 years ago, mortal enemies, to the prime minister's left, uh, to, to prime minister's right, sat the first black first lady of America. To the prime, uh, to President Obama's left, sat the First Lady of Japan, uh, uh, sitting there. Yeah. Next to her was me, 
a kid, an American kid, Japanese-American kid, who grew up behind the barbed wire fences of American concentration camps. And in front of me sat the man I love, Brad, my legal wedded husband. And to his left sat the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, sitting in front of the First Lady of Japan. So many once improbables there as thrilling reality. I couldn't, you know, I, I had to pinch myself. This is America. We change. We move forward. And we learn. Yes, there. I'm mindful of the challenges yet to come. But we are moving forward. Democracy is coming truer and more faithful to the ideals that we stand for. It was an incredible American evening for me. I became uh, a student body president at in middle school, senior board president at uh, uh, high school. I volunteered at the Adlai Stevenson for President Campaign mm. Headquarters. Most people don't uh, remember who Adlai Stevenson I was. I know. Amazing governor of Illinois. Oh. Eloquent man. Yes. And uh, Should have been president. Should have been president. Uh, I supported so many candidates who should have been Same governor here. or U.S. Your dad senator. and my dad would have gotten along very well. My dad was a history teacher, so what you're talking about means so much to me because, I mean, and you haven't even told the half of your story of the bayonets and having to stay in the horse stalls in Santa Anita, but I, I think about that's why you wrote the graphic novel, to reach young people, and I think about, you know, Star Trek really was about activism and morality and yet you are the only cast member who we think of in that context you are the only cast member who in interviews throughout his life got to a point where star trek was the least of the interesting things about you i mean how many uh, with respect to your cast members and i've met several of them star trek is incidental to an interview with george takei leonard nimoy yes well he was the one member of the cast that i consider on you know, uh, set side and talk about issues of our time, uh, the civil rights movement or the peace movement during the uh, 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 Vietnam War. And Leonard Nimoy it was another uh, a person engaged with American democracy. But that's why it means so much to me that you tell these stories and that you use your life as activism because it applies to LGBT issues as well. There's Absolutely. so many young people now who wouldn't understand that Star Trek was canceled the same year as the Stonewall Uprising. It was not a riot, it was an uprising. And that it would have been impossible for you to find work if you had come out then. And so I'm just so grateful to you for telling these stories of your struggle and making the activism one and whole with the art you do. And, uh, and for classing up Twitter, George. Well. You know, we are all Americans, and the lesson that I uh, I was taught by my father, who was the who who bore the weight, the anguish, the pain, and the rage of that unjust incarceration the most, was able to dis, uh, to educate me on the kind of government that we have. It's our fault, or it's our credit 
our government is what it is. Those are words, ideal words, due process. When you're arrested, you have a right to know why you're arrested. Yes. And then you have the right to challenge that why in a court of law. And the accuser has to deliver the evidence that those charges are true. And if they're not, then there's, that's the end of it. But in our case, there were no, there were no charges, therefore no trial and just simple punishment. America cannot be that. America is a better country than that. And what we're living through right now with all this uh, turmoil from the Supreme Court, unelected people Thank you. who lied in their Senate confirmation speeches. And were appointed by presidents the majority of Americans voted against and, and confirmed exactly. by a Senate that represents a minority of Americans. You and I are kindred. <laughs> we think alike. <laughs> oh my God! Thank you. Uh, that's that's such coming Thank from you. you that for means being something. Being on on the serious and sharing your thoughts with all your listeners. Thank you for retweeting my stuff, George. That's like that's the one thing that impresses my wife. Thank you. Um, as well, uh, we should. Well, I, I know, but thank you for for taking the most ridiculous thing humans have invented, celebrity. <laughs> and using that capital to help the least of us and for keeping the history alive for people who well, you mentioned weren't taught it. Gene Roddenberry. Yeah. It's his vision, his philosophy that uh, gave Star Trek its core values. Infinite diversity in infinite combinations, all working together in concert. That's what makes our society move forward. It is so good to have you back on this show. Brad, it's so good to have you in the corner. Next time, I want you to get on the air, please, and talk with us a bit. Thank you. Let's let's uh, do the uh, street fair together. All right. I'm all What's over What's his it? name? His name is Henry. Henry. Yeah. That's my brother's name. Right on. <laughs> it's easy to remember your, your kid's name. Well, thank you so much. Live long and prosper. Right back at you. <laughs> we'll be right back. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Sally in Montana, thank you for your patience. Hey, how's it going? Great, how are you? Hello. I'm all right. Hey, so I just a little bit of background on me really quickly is that I work, um, I'm an independent sales representative for two fundraising companies, and I cover all of Montana and half of Wyoming. And what I know about my work is I'm just a 57-year-old white girl who's trying to give PTAs fundraising information. Right on. And I cannot get into a school, not very many, 
without standing in front and ringing the bell with a camera and showing my ID and stating who I am and what my really? business is. Yeah. Well, I, I will say I that, that Rob, the, Rob Elementary School... Rob Elementary School in Texas is 90% Latino and 80% low income, if Mm. that answers your question. Right. Well, and a lot of rural Montana and rural Wyoming is, I have a a lot of Native American um, communities, a lot of reservation communities where there's a lot of, where there's a lot of crime and a um, lot of poverty, a lot of rural communities that, that are low income that are yep. that we just we see a lot of that and, you know and i just i can't i just can't wrap my head around how anybody's getting into these schools if it's somebody from outside if it's not a if it's not a teacher if it's not a student how they're getting into these schools i mean i can't even well, I can that's, that's I mean, the question I, no well the, the, I mean, the actual montana, montana's like we have so many guns in this state we are so far right red yeah. um i mean i'm a i'm a Man, I'm an enigma to people here. I'm a liberal Christian. Um, doing that's, right not thing an, that's not an enigma. That's and technically how. Yeah, that's how the Bible lays it out. You're supposed to be. By the way, <laughs> well, I want to let John. Nobody, oh, nobody knows what box to put me in here. You no, know, that's because they haven't uh, read the know, actual maybe, Bible. That's why. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I I, I don't want to judge people. I I love my LGBT community. I have a daughter who's LGBT. Um, I go to a very liberal church where we stand up against. All of this that's going on. Oh my I guess, God, I love you, I woman. I love yeah, where you. Where are you? I'll go, to that, church. I'll go to that church. John, you wanted to jump in. You, you, I did, yeah. But when I, I, I'm going to let John jump in for a second, Sally. Go ahead, John. So yeah. the whole thing with the doors and how these people are getting in the schools, people forget there's basketball games. When I, my high school, there was three sister high schools. There was East, South and North. And we had the same thing even back then because of nine 11, we had one door that was supposed to be locked and open and that was it. And that's what you could go through. Even after school hours, there was always one door that was open. That was but it. There have- was one unlocked door in the back of Rob elementary. They don't know why it was unlocked. It is a mystery wow. that has not been solved. Yet, Absolutely. But, but the problem is, and I'll tell you what it is, is people always discount human error and laziness people work in that school they're like no one's going to know this particular door or it's a little bit open or we're going to make it look like it's closed people are coming in and out of there for basketball games for team meetings for i mean the three high schools that i went to people went to those high schools from different high schools for different extracurricular activities there's just a litany of stuff that is true that is 10 times hard to prevent and not only that even if you're on the outside of that school you're picking up a student you're picking up a family member you're picking up a friend you have to know which doors are open and which doors are unlocked and Everybody in that school knows. So it's very so it's true. not like it's a it's a tight lipped, you know, well kept secret. There's always a couple doors that are unlocked. There's always a couple doors where, you know, you need access. And by to the, the way, outside. and not to sound like Ian Holm from the suite hereafter, but this was not an accident. Someone didn't do their job. This right. was not an accident that he got into the school. Sally, exactly. you're amazing. Call us more often. You make me want to go to Montana. Pope Romo, can you stick around with us till after the break? Yes, absolutely. We'll be right back. 